When you're a journalist and people don't trust you, it's always your fault. These people need to be represented. They are Canadian. They deserve to have a voice and a seat at the table. It is time to go back to the office, and the time is now. Russia had reasons to be concerned. They had reasons to be fearful. We're at an absolute turning point in reproduction. This is the problem with realism. They just treat all countries the same. They don't distinguish between dictatorships and democracies. Hello, Monk listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, your host and moderator. Welcome to this, our latest continuing conversations called The Monk Dialogues. These are in-depth questions and answers with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers. On each Monk Dialogue, we go deep into the big issues that are transforming our world and shaping our future. Across Ukraine, there's been a series of attacks from both sides as the war drags on. Tens of thousands of people have been killed, roughly 13 million more displaced, including 8 million refugees across Europe now. This has been a long and brutal summer in Ukraine. As Kyiv's counteroffensive continues to retake its lands in the east and south, now occupied by Russia. Ukraine is in ruins while Russian casualties are piling up. Western sanctions so far don't seem to be working against Russia as intended. As the war between Russia and Ukraine enters its 20th month, experts fear that a negotiated settlement will not be reached anytime soon. On this Monk Dialogue, we're joined by one of the world's leading realist thinkers in international relations, Harvard University professor Stephen Walt, to talk about some surprising developments that have emerged from this conflict and why it could drag on for much longer. Stephen Walt, welcome to the Monk Dialogues. It's a pleasure to be back talking with you. Likewise, I remember our important debate with you on uh, the war in Ukraine, really just weeks after it broke out. Um, we convened you, John Mearsheimer, Ambassador Michael McFall, and uh, Radek Sikorsky, the former foreign minister of Poland. I want to start with you, Stephen, with that debate almost more than a year and a half ago now. What surprised you about the course of this war and your kind of specialty, great power politics? What strikes you as maybe novel or new? What's worth our attention over the last 18 months? I'd point to maybe three things that uh, are somewhat surprising. Uh, in how the war has proceeded that I, I'm not sure anybody really anticipated particularly well. I mean, first, I, I think we underestimated early on uh, the Russian ability to adapt and learn. Uh, their military performance in the first months of the war seemed to be so poor. Uh, the failed assault on Kiev as well. I think there was a tendency to then denigrate Russian military capabilities. Uh, the fact that the initial Ukrainian counteroffensive in the fall of 2022 uh, went very well, again, made people think that this was really the, the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And I think people have been surprised since then that uh, the Russians have learned they've gotten better. Uh, and that's been a uh, something that I think relatively few people anticipated, particularly after the first few months of the war. Second thing is uh, that uh, sanctions proved to be less effective than many people anticipated, both before the war and in the early months. What's interesting, of course, is that, in fact, the West did more in terms of sanctions than many people thought they would. Uh, the fact that Germany weaned itself off Russian oil and gas with remarkable speed. Uh, lots of countries in the West joined in the sanctions program. So in a sense, the sanctions were more 
successful in one sense, but not in terms of really weakening the Russian economy, certainly not changing Russia's course of action, uh, that the Russian economies managed to adapt in various ways. They've managed to continue exporting oil and gas. But again, people overestimated how effective sanctions would be. And I would count myself in that, um, in that camp as well. Uh, and then third, and this is maybe the most disturbing, is um, I think we've all been surprised to discover how unprepared NATO and the United States, the West as a whole, were for modern industrial uh, strength warfare. We were accustomed to fighting these short, quick campaigns against relatively weak opponents like the Iraqi army uh, or fighting counterinsurgency campaigns like the war in Afghanistan, but not a big you know, artillery and armor based war of attrition involving massive amounts of, of ammunition. And we're discovering, of course, that the West just isn't ready for that. Not only did we not have sufficient ammunition stocks, despite all the things that were sent to Ukraine, but uh, you couldn't spin up the industrial base to start producing lots of them. So the United States uh, somewhat surprisingly started shipping cluster munitions to Ukraine, not because we thought that was such a great idea, but because we were running out of ammunition <clears throat> to send otherwise. And I think that's been a bit of a wake up call as well, that back when we were in Toronto debating some of these issues, nobody thought uh, about that issue. And that has been, you know, again, one of the unpleasant surprises of a very unpleasant conflict. One of the key premises of what well, the key premise of the spring 2022 debate that you took part with us on the Ukraine war was that ending the war, finding a solution to it would require somehow acknowledging Russia's interests. Where do you think we are at, Stephen, in terms of that conversation. Has the the seeming slowness, um, the stalling of this counteroffensive opened the way for that argument? Because up until now, Stephen, I think you would acknowledge that very few people have been willing to really give any quarter to the idea that we should be acknowledging some of Russia's interests to find uh, some kind of resolution, stalemate, at minimum, an end to the bloodshed and slaughter. Well, I'd make a general point first, that, that unless you can inflict a total military defeat on another country and you know, occupy its territory in entirety and then dictate terms, at some respect, ending a war always involves, to some degree, accommodating each side's interests, uh, at least uh, the ones that are, are most important to them. So, if you don't think you're going to be able to inflict a decisive military defeat on, on Russia, then at some point you're going to have to uh, accommodate at least some of their interests as well. Uh, you know, our argument back in uh, in May of 2022 was that a fundamental cause of the war, if not the fundamental cause, was Russia's fear that Ukraine was being absorbed into the Western security order. It was essentially a discussion about or a debate about Ukraine's overall geopolitical alignment. I'll just say, by the way, that yes, that's been an unpopular view over the last 18 months, two years. It was not a radical view. Uh, for many years beforehand. This was the point that Ambassador Bill Burns made in 2008 when he was ambassador to, to Russia and said, you know, Ukrainian entry into NATO was the brightest of all red lines for all the Russians he knew, including liberal critics of, of Putin and lots of other people 
Secretary of Defense William Perry back in the 1990s, George Kennan, Angela Merkel, everyone had acknowledged that uh, Ukraine's geopolitical alignment was a core issue for Russia, and pushing too hard on that might provoke a, a conflict. It also just makes a certain amount of logical sense. Great powers tend to be very worried about their immediate surroundings. That's certainly true of the United States. We're just fortunate to have Canada as, as a neighbor uh, rather than a country that might be uh, might be dangerous. What all this means is that to end the war, you know, we argued back then you had to address Russian security concerns. If you didn't, the war would go on, it would gradually escalate, and Ukraine would be wrecked in the process, would be heavily damaged. Now, that was back then. In some respects, the situation's even worse now, because the discussion back then was just about this question of Ukraine's geopolitical alignment. You know, how's it going to uh, locate itself? Is it going to be a neutral country, etc.? Um, and there was some question about what would be the relationship of the two eastern oblasts, uh, Donetsk and Lukansk. Would they be have some degree of autonomy? Those were the issues. The issues now are much broader and much tougher to resolve. You still have the question of Ukrainian neutrality or membership in NATO or whatever its future is going to be. But now Russia has claimed not just those first two uh, oblasts for autonomy, but they've uh, formally annexed four oblasts as well. So you have a much bigger territorial dispute than you had uh, a year and a half ago. And of course, on our side, on the Ukrainian side and on the Western side, in some respects, our war aims have gone up too. We were originally you know, hoping to preserve Ukrainian independence, but now it's Ukraine getting back all of its territory, including Crimea. Vladimir Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court in The Hague. So the people who want to see Putin ousted and put on trial, in a sense, both sides now want more than they wanted when the war initially broke out. And last but not least, the level of destruction has gone way up, uh, especially uh, for Ukraine, which in my view is a terrible tragedy uh, and one of the reasons why I, I hope the war ends as soon as possible. Let's just briefly think together, but what could that end game look like? Is this something that might start to take some shape as soon as this autumn? Are you expecting instead a much longer path to even the commencement of negotiations or some kind of dialogue? What is your sense of the relative intensity, fatigue, you know, the resources of men and materiel? What does the the equation look like right now to you, Stephen? And what might be a timeline if you could look at past conflicts, if there are any analogies to history to explain how this might play out? I mean, I, I think it's really hard to give a firm uh, firm timeline. I am not optimistic uh, that the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive is going to achieve any strategically significant results. It may gain bits of territory in various places, but it's doing so at an extraordinarily uh, high cost. Uh, and I actually think Ukraine would be better served uh, actually to shift back to the defensive, preserve uh, the territory that they have. Uh, the problem is that 
you can't win a, a war of attrition, which is what we're in now, against a numerically larger adversary, especially if you're fighting on the offensive where you're more vulnerable and you're going into very well-prepared defenses. The result of this is Ukraine, which is smaller than Russia by a substantial margin, is losing more than the Russians are, and that's just not a winning uh, a winning strategy uh, there as well. Um, there have been, I think, you know, rumors of informal talks, some track two discussions, uh, things like that. Um, but I don't believe at this stage uh, the Russians are in any uh, hurry to bring this uh, to an end because they're not doing badly uh, in terms of, of their objectives. And the question, I think, will be, uh, you know, at what point do they decide that the strategic situation vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine is, is sort of satisfactory enough from their point of view. And then we have to then get into all of the details that would have to be worked out, and they are considerable. There is, first of all, the original question, what is Ukraine's geopolitical alignment going to be? Is it going to be neutral? Is it going to be in the Russian sphere? Is it going to be in the Western sphere, um, et cetera? There's the question of what's the territorial uh, distribution now. Where's the line going to be drawn uh, here? How much of its territory will Ukraine get back? Some, all, not much. Uh, you know, we don't need to determine that. We have to figure out what the shipping arrangements in the Black Sea are going to be so that these problems of shipping grain are have been resolved as well. There's the question of war crimes and whether or not anyone's going to be held accountable for them. Uh, et cetera, repatriation of prisoners, repatriation of population. There's a lot of issues here that have to be uh, have to be sorted through. And I don't think that conversation will really begin in earnest uh, until each side understands that they've got sort of about as much as they can reasonably get. I also think it's going to be difficult for Americans, uh, uh, despite the fact that they've played a, a sort of leadership role in supporting Ukraine, it's going to be difficult for uh, the Biden administration to push hard on Kiev to start talking in a serious way, particularly in the run up to a presidential election and a presidential election where the U.S. has been all in, you know, for as long as it takes. So I don't see a negotiated settlement happening in the next 18 months to two years. And again, I, I say take no pleasure whatsoever in saying that. Yeah, great, uh, great insights. What if you could just help me with one thing that I've struggled a bit with over the last 18 months, which is this inversion of of roles, Stephen, in people's um, thinking, and some might almost say ideology, to their theory of of the conflict and, and how this war should be persecuted. It seems that we're at a point where, to use the no nomenclature of the moment that you know the hawks are doves and the doves are hawks and there's been this switching of people who might normally have been associated with let's say a more kind of liberal worldview who traditionally would have looked for approaches of um negotiation of settlement of certainly not a kind of maximal approach to a war and to that war's war aims and then on the other side maybe the camp sometimes you're associated with the realists fairly or not are often um, seen to be more the practitioners of hard power who who look at hard power as a way to 
as a reality of the world and a way that you know states solve problems. Yet now it seems that the realists are often in the so-called peace camp, and the the you know the neoliberals or whatever you want to call them are in the the war camp. And I, is this noteworthy, Stephen? Is this a some kind of switch or changeover in Western views about foreign policy and the theories underneath them, or is this just a product of this unique conflict and what it's elicited? Uh, That's a great question. And uh, and I think it's actually not a a new development at all. Uh, You go back to the 1960s. Some of the first and most eloquent opponents of American involvement in Vietnam were so-called realists. People like Hans Morgenthau, Walter Lippmann, uh, my, uh, my own advisor, Kenneth Waltz, uh, George Kennan and others all thought the war in Vietnam was a bad idea. And it was American liberals who for a long time uh, supported the war. You fast forward then to the uh, war in Iraq in 2003. Again, the most uh, visible opponents of that war were not American liberals. Lots of liberal hawks supported the war because Saddam Hussein was a horrible tyrant and they were worried about human rights. Um, you know, my my friend and former Canadian uh, politician, Michael Ignatieff, was a very eloquent uh, supporter of, of the war beforehand. And it was realists like me who kept saying this is a bad idea. Right. And similarly, uh, in the in the run up uh, to the war here in Ukraine, uh, it's the realists who are saying, you know, if you keep poking a major power in the way the United States has been doing uh, through NATO enlargement and a variety of other actions, eventually you're going to get a reaction and you're not going to like that reaction when you get it. And it was the American liberals who thought you could spread democracy all over the world and expand NATO in an open-ended fashion, and it would never have any negative consequences, who, of course, now, um, you know, do not want to, they now want to deny responsibility for any of this by blaming everything on on Vladimir Putin. So I I think part of it is just understanding that, yes, realists uh, do understand that hard power matters, and they think, uh, you know, international politics is mostly about the interplay of, of power, but that makes them respectful of what happens when power is misused, uh, even with the best of intentions, even with the noblest of ideals uh, behind it. And the tragedy here is it's the people of Ukraine who are now suffering most for the miscalculations uh, that we made. To say that takes nothing away from Vladimir Putin's direct responsibility for ordering a war that is clearly illegal and has in some cases been fought in a quite brutal fashion. But we should have understood that that was likely to happen if we kept doing what we were doing. If you're enjoying the Friday Focus podcast as a donor, but haven't yet taken that next step of becoming a Monk supporter, now is your opportunity. For the next couple of weeks, we have a flash sale on 30% off Monk supporter level membership. You get all kinds of great benefits, including a decade and a half back catalog of terrific debates and dialogues covering all the big issues of our time, a complimentary ebook, a charitable tax receipt for Canadian residents, and the ability to share your Monk membership with friends and family. Just a few of the incredible perks of becoming a Monk supporter. You can do that right now by going to our website, www.monkdebates.com. That's M-U-N-K, debates with an S.com. Look for the top right navigation, click on membership, 
and at checkout, enter MONK30, M-U-N-K-3-0, to get your 30% off discount before it's gone. Act now, become a MONK supporter. Thank you in advance for your generous support. Let me pivot to China, because this is another topic that you're writing a lot about these days. And in some ways, it is another great theater of great power relations. Stephen, what are you seeing right now in terms of how the contest over Taiwan is starting to shape up between China and the United States? Because there are some that are arguing that you could, if you wanted to be uncharitable, say that there is a pattern here of NATO encroachment around traditional Russian spheres of influence and concerns about security. And now, uh, once again, American-led uh, armament of Taiwan, for, again, for all kinds of potentially legitimate reasons, including the freedom and independence of the Taiwanese uh, people. But once again, encroaching deep into uh, China's sphere of influence, literally 100 miles off the border of mainline, mainland China, sits the island of Taiwan. Do you have a concern, Stephen, that maybe we're not learning from history, that there's a risk here that the same patterns that led to this, for many of us, unexpected and calamitous war in Ukraine could be playing out once again vis-a-vis -vis this standoff over you know, the future state of Taiwan. Yeah, I think there's there's clearly uh, some warning signs here uh, that one might interpret from this. I think it's one has to be careful to distinguish between the differences in, in the two cases as well. Um, you know, the United States has had a relationship with Taiwan and has had a military presence in East Asia for decades now. So it's not like we're suddenly moving uh, to uh, to a closer relationship or a close relationship with Taiwan. I think one can make the argument that we may have gone a little further in the last few years. Uh, some of the statements that uh, came out of President Biden that then got walked back. Uh, that where we appeared to be leaving the so-called uh, one China policy in various ways, that that's something that that's new. But the American presence in that part of the world is not uh, not entirely new. I do think the uh, the Ukraine analogy uh, offers the warning of creating essentially prevent a preventive war situation where China feels that we are taking steps that will render Taiwan forever out of reach, um, that there will be no possibility of reunification, not just by any arbitrary deadline that you might want to pick, but at any point ever, um, and deciding that if they don't do something now, then the opportunity may be lost for a century or more, uh, possibly forever. And that's similar, it seems to me, to the situation that Russia and Putin felt back in 2020 and 2021 that because of the way we were arming Ukraine, uh, training Ukraine, that if they waited five years, if they waited 10 years, Ukraine might be too tough to tackle right, and, and to address and there wouldn't be anything they could do about it. I think that's a cautionary, a cautionary tale. Now, a military operation against Taiwan by China is a much riskier operation. Uh, it could fail catastrophically because amphibious uh, invasions are very difficult uh, to do. 
Uh, I worry less about that than I worry about various other forms of military pressure or blockade uh, starting to interfere with trade in a variety of ways and trying to force the United States to decide if it was going to resist this or not. Uh, I hope it doesn't come to that. I think the United States should be doing more to reaffirm our commitment to the one China policy, that we believe reunification uh, should happen at some point, that it should be voluntary on both sides and trying to do what we can to lower the temperature there uh, while not giving sort of China a green light uh, to do anything about it. Um, and by the way, that's the other reason why some realists, I wouldn't put myself in that camp, but um, by some realists argue that we have to have a different policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine, because the real challenge over the long term is China. And we're allowing ourselves to be distracted and, in fact, using up lots of equipment in a variety of ways that we might need uh, for a more important conflict down the road. That's one of the areas where I think, you know, you find realists actually disagreeing with each other to some degree. If you move beyond just the question of uh, the risks associated with America's continuing arms supplies into Taiwan, and you look at the broader American strategy towards China now, especially this uh, concerted effort by the Biden administration to remove from China or thwart their ability to master the, you know, the big technologies of the 21st century that are often enabled and facilitated by advanced uh, computing, advanced computer chips. What is your view on this, uh, Stephen? Is this a smart strategy to kind of hobble a potential peer competitor? Is it something, again, that could run unexpected risks if China genuinely feels that this is a policy of, of outright containment, thwarting their ability to progress as a as a nation as a people as they would think as a civilization what's your take on both the strategy and the the intended effects are they calibrated properly at this moment i worry that they are not calibrated properly uh, the uh, sort of stepping back for a second just recognize that the united states is doing something remarkably ambitious we are essentially waging a proxy military conflict against Russia, right, in Ukraine, and we are waging an economic war against China at the same time. Uh, not surprisingly, that has further reinforced the Sino-Russian uh, alliance uh, or partnership, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that's two pretty demanding tasks to take on simultaneously. Now, in terms of the uh, the actual campaign against China, uh, the Biden administration has tried to make it clear that this is narrow, focused, it is well calibrated, and it's focused uh, in, almost entirely on strict national security concerns. Um, uh, Jake Sullivan's line, you know, that it's a high wall or a high fence, but a small yard that we're trying to protect here. And I think one can make perfectly legitimate defensible arguments about how you don't want technologies that might have direct and immediate and important military applications uh, to be sent to China in, in various ways. You don't want to do anything that's going to make their military substantially better in the near term. I think the problem is it's very hard to keep that yard small. Um, 
you can raise the high fence, but the yard tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger because lots of these technologies uh, have lots of applications. And we appear to be not just focusing on sort of narrow things that might have direct military applications, but we appear to be trying to cripple uh, their entire ability to command the commanding heights of digital technology. We want to stay ahead of them, not just in the military applications of that technology, but in artificial intelligence and the most sophisticated computer chips and, you know, down the road, 5G and 6G, uh, you know, uh, interfaces and interactivity. So all of that stuff appears to be designed not to crash the Chinese economy. I don't think we want to do that. It's not in our interest to do that. Uh, but to hobble it, uh, to make sure it remains behind us in a lot of these areas. Um, and I think there are two great risks here. Uh, first risk is, of course, this poisons the relationship with Beijing, makes them much less likely to cooperate with us on areas where we ought to be collaborating, uh, climate change, any number of other global issues where our interests are, in fact, uh, pretty closely aligned. But secondly, we're giving them an enormous incentive uh, to compete with us on on this and to try and become independent uh, if they possibly can. So, you know, if you think that we can remain permanently ahead of China for the next 50 years on all of these dimensions, maybe this would make sense, but I don't think that's uh, that's likely. And meanwhile, while we are focused so heavily on this particular aspect of technology, they are forging ahead on solar. They're doing better than we are on, on you know, wind technology. Uh, they're actually, I think, starting to lap us in terms of electric vehicles uh, and battery technology, things like that, which are also going to be pretty critical in the 21st century as well. So the idea that this economic war can sort of permanently handicap uh, China, I think, is is overly optimistic on our part. What would you see as a a potential Chinese reaction to this. What what would the realist answer be to China in terms of how to respond to these pressures, technological uh, pressures around Taiwan in terms of uh, perceptions of their own spheres of influence? We now know that reshoring is clearly having a, a not insignificant effect on Chinese uh, exports. They're down double digits uh, in some of the most recent reports over the course of the last year. So would it be fair to say that China is um, under pressure? And I guess the question would be, how do they think about this? And do you think that they use realist approaches to conceptualizing challenges and opportunities when it comes to their relationship with the United States and the future of their country? So I think that under Xi Jinping, uh, China has made a number of really serious missteps and his consolidation of power to where he is effectively unchallengeable uh, at this point has actually been a, a huge problem for China because he's not a genius, he's not infallible, and he's made some pretty big mistakes. Um, so he's, in many respects, departed from what I think most realists would have recommended for China, uh, that China should continue to develop its economy increase its military power as its economy developed, but uh, not uh, throw a lot of sharp elbows, uh, not 
uh, openly and explicitly say that they wanted to change the status quo in Asia in a variety of ways, not proclaim lofty ambitions, uh, that if you're going to be powerful, you want to also sort of, you know, speak softly, but carry a big stick. And what the Chinese have done over the past 10 or 15 years is get an increasingly large stick and speak in louder and louder and louder. Uh, the adoption of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy being one manifestation, the treatment of the two Michaels in Canada uh, is a classic example of a, you know, uh, from the Chinese point of view, a self-inflicted wound, uh, completely altered Canadian attitudes uh, towards China. And there are other examples vis-a-vis -vis Australia and a number of other countries as well. So the Chinese have not acted the way a realist would suggest, right? They've actually provoked a lot of opposition. And if I were advising Xi Jinping, I would say, look, we have to continue to develop our economy, continue to get stronger in a whole variety of ways, but we uh, need to start improving our relations with other countries. We don't want to alarm others, particularly our neighbors, but we also don't want to alarm the, the Europeans and others because we don't want to make it easy for the United States to win a lot of friends in various places. We want to make it hard on the United States. We want to look like the good guys. We want to make them look like the bad guys who are causing trouble, destabilizing the world. And the Chinese, uh, to America's benefit, have have not been acting in that way. They've uh, been acting in ways that have made it somewhat easier for the United States to win friends, not everywhere, but in a number of uh, in a number of critical places as well. So, you know, China needs to go back to realism 101. And if if China, I should add, if China did that and the United States did that, too, we actually we would have a competitive relationship. But I think it would be a less fraught one, less risky one where the conflicting interests would be managed primarily through diplomacy. And we wouldn't have this sense that, you know, there's some possibility of a real explosion down the road. Mm -hmm. Let's try to link our our two topics together, Ukraine and China. Some people have hypothesized that path to peace that lies through and the Ukraine conflict could start in Beijing, that China, for all kinds of reasons, would love to be perceived of as the proverbial peacemaker. It would be a major kind of coup for them in terms of international standing and their own perceived relevance and influence. And that the respective parties here, if we were going to look to a nation that certainly has Russia's attention, wouldn't that be China? And wouldn't the government of Zelensky or a future Ukrainian president, similarly, if they're going to look for security guarantees, couldn't those guarantees possibly be more meaningful coming from Beijing or refereed by Beijing as opposed to Washington? Yeah, it's a great, a great question. I mean, I think Chinese motives are somewhat mixed here. Um, the point you lay out that that China would love to get the credit for being sort of the peacemaker, uh, the diplomatic leader of the 21st century. Uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, and at some point, you know, I think they may understand that, uh, well, they do understand that their position right now is complicating their relationships with other countries. Uh, they've wanted to reopen their economic ties with Europe, for example, and this is a real break to that because the Europeans are not happy with the position Beijing has taken. On the other hand, uh, this is a huge distraction for the United States. 
Uh, that's probably uh, uh, something the Chinese benefit from, or at least have benefited from. Um, so, you know, I think they've been somewhat torn on this question. I actually wrote a piece a few months ago suggesting that the United States should go to Beijing and say we should do a joint peace initiative here. It would be a precedent uh, for, you know, great power cooperation. They have leverage over the Russians. We have leverage over Ukraine. Um, so let's do this together. And I didn't think it would work necessarily, but there was very little to lose by suggesting it. And it, in a sense, called Beijing's bluff. In other words, they could they couldn't continue to float these kind of meaningless peace ideas and turn down an American proposal for a joint initiative. If they did turn it down, then it would expose that their uh, their position was sort of hollow. I do agree with one other point you made, though, that at the end of the war, both sides, Russia and Ukraine, are going to want some assurances as to the future. Uh, the assurances will take different forms. And one of the ways of making those uh, assurances more credible is to have them ratified by as many of the other major powers as possible. So if China were involved in the process, involved in the negotiations in some fashion, if eventually a peace settlement is ratified by a UN Security Council resolution that passes unanimously with the Chinese supporting it as well, that it seems to me maybe the best one can do in providing diplomatic assurances to Ukraine, but also uh, to Moscow. So you know, China may have a role to play uh, in due course. And just finally, to build on this, what do you think of this theory about this emerging block of, of Saudi Arabia, China, Brazil, somewhere in the orbit, maybe not tight against the nuclei, but there, Russia similarly there, not tight, but part of this group as a, a kind of great power, I don't know, a coalition, maybe not these all these entities great powers unto themselves but together as a coalition acting as this um, wedge and uh, frankly thorn in American interests and you know strategy globally is this a, a viable coalition what what would he, maybe just to think big our final thoughts here what does history say when you have a you know a single great power, possibly a hyperpower in the form of the United States facing off against this, the emergence of a coalition of powers that are seemingly, if not outright opposed to that preeminent power, are there actively undermining its interests in a whole variety of different ways. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think there is a, a, a sort of global South call it faction or coalition or whatever, it's not tightly aligned with Russia and, and China and certainly not uh, aligned with them against the United States at this point. I think that, um, you know, if you look at the, what and we're no longer in the sort of unipolar world with one hyperpower and a bunch of other uh, weaker powers, what we're in is a sort of rough multipolar or rough bipolar world. And for some of those countries in the global south, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, to some degree, India, to some degree, Brazil, this isn't a bad situation because they can play both sides off against each other. And the Saudis are doing that uh, more effectively than anyone else. Turkey, to some degree, has played this game uh, as well. They have options now they didn't have when the United States was kind of the only game in town. 
what you asked about historical analogies, what I keep thinking about is the early Cold War, the 1950s. You had Russia and China aligned in the communist world. You had the United States aligned with Europe and NATO, Western Europe in NATO, and a set of allies in Asia as well. And then you had the non-aligned movement. Um, the non-aligned. Now, what's interesting is you're seeing something rather similar emerging now. There's the sort of Eastern powers, Russia, China, and a few others associated with them. The United States leading the West and still tied, in fact, more deeply tied in Asia, uh, countering China. And you have this global South where some of those states have kind of switched sides to some degree. So India was very much aligned or leaning towards the Soviet Union. Now it kind of leans towards us, not all, all the way. Um, Saudi Arabia was very much in the American camp in the 1950s. Not so much anymore. Still connected to us, but now starting to open up things with China. So I think of this world as resembling the early 1950s, but where the the scorecard's a little different as to who's playing in what position. Um, that may be the best analogy we can come up with right now. Squeeze one more question in, because you mentioned the non-aligned countries of the 1950s and early 60s. Pierre Elliott Trudeau famously had... Uh, as prime minister, a very controversial tour of the unaligned, uh, non-aligned countries, trying to create for Canada this idea that we could have this other set of relationships above and beyond our relationship with the United States. My final question to you, Steve, is what, if any, advice do you have for Canada in this world? Because right now, it seems as if to many Canadians that, as you've mentioned, we have this toxic relationship with China. We have uh, a Biden administration that is, you know, fermenting ideas around a kind of league of democracies that we're under a lot of pressure to uh, march with shoulder to shoulder, maybe Canadians historically wanting a third option, a third way. That seems to be closing for us in this world of more intense, as you've characterized it, multipolar competition in the the kind of end of that era of American, you know, hyperpower status. Unlike most of my countrymen, I, I tend to be reluctant to tell other countries what to do. Um, but but I'll take a swing at it. I mean, I think, you know, the, given Canada's geographic location, given its basic set of uh, political values, its history and orientation, um, there's a limited range of options, right? Canada is not going to suddenly realign with Moscow or Beijing or, or suddenly decide to chart its own course. Um, but on lots of international questions, I think the Canadian perspective is often more sensible than the American one, less uh, prone to hubris, uh, more mindful of you know some complexities as well. So I guess what I hope for Canada is that they will remain close to the United States, continue to whisper in our ear whenever possible, and I hope we listen. We could do worse. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Monk Dialogues today. It's always a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you. Your insights get me off and thinking in a whole bunch of different directions, and I'm sure you've done that for all of our listeners today. So thank you again for coming on the program. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. 
Well, that wraps up today's Monk Dialogue. I want to thank our guest, Professor Stephen Walt. He certainly gave us a lot to think about. We'd love your feedback and reflections on what you've just heard. Please send us an email to podcast at monkdebates.com. That's M-U-N-K, debates with an S, dot com. A friendly reminder that you can catch our weekly current affairs podcast, Friday Focus, that comes out. You got it every Friday. Join Janice Stein and myself for a deep dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation. Check out a sample right now on our website, www.monkdebates.com, or within the podcast feed that you're listening to right now. Thank you for lending your time and attention to our efforts to bring back the art of civil and substantive conversation, one dialogue at a time. I'm your host and moderator, Roger Griffiths. The Monk Debates are a project of the Aurea and Peter and Melanie Monk Charitable Foundations. Rudyard Griffiths and Ricky Gerwitz are the producers. Be sure to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us, feel free to give us a five-star rating. Thank you again for listening.